Hey everybody, Vishnu here. I'm actually going on tour with my band for the last time, Gunger, which my wife and I started in 2009 and have gone through incredible journeys with, um, is coming to an end. We feel like it's time for a new chapter. And it's sad and exciting. There's no drama about it. We just feel like a clean slate would be an enjoyable thing to create with. So if you're interested in seeing our band for the last time, maybe for some of you the first and the last time, um, go to gungermusic, G-U-N-G-O-R, music.com slash tour. There'll be a list of dates on there that goes from February 18th. There's a, that goes for a couple weeks. It goes from Michigan and down to Chicago and Ohio and Nashville, Atlanta. It goes through Texas. There's one in Oklahoma City. And then in April and May, we do a whole West Coast run. Um, so do check those dates out. Gungermusic.com slash tour. Last chance to sing some of those songs with Gunger. And uh, it's going to be beautiful and sad and exciting for the end of one chapter and the beginning of a new one. Also, I will have my upcoming book, this, Becoming Free, which is, uh, you know, what this podcast is ramping up to and expounding on. Uh, this podcast was meant to be kind of a, a way of moving up to the book and then expounding on the ideas into the different stories that cause us suffering. So it doesn't, the book doesn't come out till April 16th, but you can get a copy at the table on this end of the world tour that Gunger's going to be on. And also the band brilliance and propaganda, as you will hear on this episode, propaganda is a guest on this episode. So, Hope to see you there. Much love, everybody. Hope you enjoy today's episode. All people are when you manifestations obey God's word of that was built by slaves. And I watch my daughters. There is nobody that respects women more than I do. This. I have a little brother named David who has four kids. And I've got to say, I was quite happy when Kate, his wife, first gave birth to their first daughter. Because there was a story from our childhood that had haunted me for years. I was afraid that because of this story, my brother wasn't going to be able to have children. It's not a story I'm proud of, but I'll go ahead and tell you, I suppose. You see, David is an eight on the Enneagram the challenger and he was always looking for a fight i mean we have video of him as a baby challenging the older brothers from the time he was just tiny he could barely walk he would come up and tell us that he could beat us up he would take his power pill and run into the other room and get himself all pumped up and then come in just swinging at us usually it was kind of cute and funny but as he started getting a little older it got less cute and less funny for me as he began to find new, more clever ways of goading us and pushing our buttons. 
One particular thing that he found that really pissed me off was when he would mess with my baseball cards. I'm not much of a sports guy anymore, but at the time, those baseball cards were my treasures. And so, of course, David, being the provocateur that he was, sneaked into my room, got my baseball cards, brought them out into the family room where I was hanging out, and threw them. There was like a tin of them, and they scattered all across the floor. And I don't remember thinking anything, or even starting to get mad. It was just an immediate zero to ten rage. As I lashed out with my foot and kicked my little brother right in the nuts. It may be worth mentioning that this is not how my brother remembers the story at all. He thinks he was just going through my baseball cards. What both of us do remember the same, though, is our mother's reaction. You remember the nice lady from last week's podcast? No, you're like this. That's what you're like. Yeah, that woman is all goofy and fun and nice, but you do not want to see her after you have kicked her baby boy in what she calls the Ganos. tell you it was not a good time for me after that and rightfully so it was uh, it was an overreaction and david if you're listening to this i'm i am again really sorry for uh kicking you in the dick i'm glad that you have four children now for my own conscience sake but i was thinking about that story today because i was thinking about how often our actions aren't commensurate with what's actually happening in that very moment. I think this is particularly true with the closest relationships, family relationships, where somebody doesn't do the dishes and now their partner is screaming about wanting to get a divorce. Or your sister makes a comment about the mashed potatoes at Thanksgiving dinner and now the family has erupted into World War III. This is the sort of thing that can happen when there's all of these old stories that suddenly come back into the room and the smallest thing sets somebody off. The thing that happened with the baseball cards with David, whether his memory is more accurate than mine or not, it wasn't really about those baseball cards in that moment. My severe reaction was because of what was happening inside of my own body with the stories that were being told inside my brain. That made me feel that whatever David did with those baseball cards was a direct attack on my personhood, on my dignity as a human being, and I lost control. It's an important realization to see that anytime we're interacting with somebody, we're not actually interacting with the reality of that person or that moment, but our own projections and our own stories and our own thoughts about who that person is. That's what a relationship is. It's a story about who they are, who you are, who you are together. And this dynamic of every action not being about just that action, but a whole line of stories, doesn't just apply to families or even relationships. It also just applies to society. Take what happened last week on the stairs of the Lincoln Memorial, for example. If somebody that had been sleeping in a cave for the last three years 
just happened to finally wander out into the sunlight and check his Twitter feed, he may have been surprised to see the level of indignation over what happened on those steps. Perhaps to that person, he would see a hat that said, Make America Great Again, and see an indigenous person and think, maybe these kids are trying to right the wrongs that America has done to the indigenous people that lived here before the white people came. Or imagine if somebody saw that scenario and had no ideas about the injustices and the genocide and the violence committed against indigenous peoples in this continent. That person could very well think that everyone had just lost their mind. Why is everyone so mad at some kids grinning and dancing with an elderly man playing a drum? I mean, try to imagine seeing the scene without all of these pre-existing stories in your head about who those people are based on the demographics that they exhibit with their appearance. I mean, can we take a moment and try to consider how the incident at the Lincoln Memorial would have felt differently with a few of the details changed? Imagine, for instance, if that same group of boys had acted like that in response to a white guy with a guitar who had walked up and started strumming and playing, I am a friend of God, and they did the exact same thing, same gestures, same facial expressions. Do you think it would have been quite as newsworthy? Or imagine if rather than the black Hebrew Israelites yelling at the white boys with the MAGA hats on, you had some white men with MAGA hats on yelling at some young girls with Hillary hats on. Would the story have changed? Would your feelings about what happened on those stairs shift? Of course they would, and for good reason. All human actions exist within a context, a context of stories. A Make America Great Again hat is not just about a hat. That slogan is not just about wanting America to thrive. After all, what makes a nation great? We can't even agree on that because what makes something great is a story, and we are telling fundamentally different stories in our society. My friend Rachel Held Evans said on Twitter, Man, some days it feels like we're living through some kind of drawn-out, macabre, blue-dress, white-dress debate. Like, I see a jeering crowd of boys jumping up and down, making tomahawk motions around an elderly indigenous man. You see a group of innocent boys in prayerful respect being assaulted as they try to defuse the situation. How are we looking at the same thing? And that's the thing. We're not looking at the same thing. Because all we're ever really looking at is the stories in our own heads. And the stories that we're telling are different. The outrage and discrepancies about what actually happened last week on those steps cannot be objectively judged as simply the actions of individuals. How we feel about that incident depends entirely on the narratives that that incident is being filtered through. The narratives about who belongs to what group and what the story of that group is, what they're trying to do in the world. On some level, this is entirely unfair. I mean, not everybody in any of the groups represented on that video are acting entirely the same as the other people in their group, but we lump them all together, don't we? 
the boys with the MAGA hats, the indigenous people, the black Hebrew Israelites. We see teams and groups, us and them. As we all watched those videos and got different perspectives, none of us saw it from an objective point of view. That's impossible. We are subjects. We interpreted every facial expression and gesture and tone of voice through the set of stories that we've inherited from our us and them stories. Every little thing that we saw on that video became added to a constellation of meaning in our heads. You know, constellations aren't real. (laughs) They're shapes that we imagine between stars. And that's how we process everything in life. We put it onto a grid. We put it onto a meaning-making map in order to better understand it and to try to have more control of our lives. I could imagine some people resisting this idea that our group stories are the primary mechanism by which we experience the world, perhaps especially white people, because let's be honest, a very integral part of the we story of whiteness is a preeminent individualism. I think, therefore I am. I am the master of my own destiny, the pursuer of my own happiness. My group if I even have one, is simply part of my life. Whiteness as a we story, not as a color of skin, is a giant steamroller that flattens all the other we stories in its path. You want to be accepted? Paid a fair wage? Elected to public office? No problem. Just be like us. Be white. This sort of thing only works when the story itself has a way of de-emphasizing or delegitimizing the stories that it plows through. And that happens through the lens of individualism. Group stories? What group stories? I don't know what you're talking about. The truth is that there is no sense of I without a we that comes first. Our sense of I is directly and completely determined by our fundamental and primary sense of we. Think about it for a bit. Who gave you the word or concept of I? How did you come to think of yourself as a self, as an individual who was born and who will die? Do you remember being born? I don't. How do you know you were born? And how do you know you'll die? The only way you know you're going to die is because somebody told you that. You've been taught that you are one of us. We humans, we die. How would you know that? Aside from somebody telling you. Like imagine if your life consisted of simply waking up in a blank space with nothing and no one else around. No memories, no language, just the raw sensory information. Would you assume that you were a being that would die someday? How would you assume such a thing? How would you think anything? You wouldn't, nor would you think that there was a you to do the thinking. Your very concept of yourself as a self 
as a body, as a person, as a personality, as an individual, comes first from a we. We're all just living our lives on the assumptions that we've been handed. All of our fundamental beliefs and senses of identity come from we. Even as you think of yourself as a man or a woman or as non-binary or whatever else, you don't think of yourself like that because you made up those concepts or words or identities on your own, but because you've been handed stories from your group, your culture, your tribe about what those words mean. I is a product of the we. And so, in the spiritual work of seeing through the illusion of self and of separation that causes suffering, we can't ignore the we stories from which the I stories spring. We are swimming in these we-defining stories. There are religious stories and sexual stories. There's racial, economic, political philosophical stories, stories about nationality, orientation, creed, heritage, legacy, and countless others that we use to create meaning and identity with. What I've been thinking through a lot is this idea of like cultural mestizanes. This is Dr. Alma Zaragoza Petty. Just being of two places but not having an actual home and that and that meaning like not actually having a home and for a long time I remember thinking this was my tragic story like this was the sad part about my life that I didn't have a home I don't have a place that I feel I am in my truest identity because my identity is composed of two different places um, you know I grew up in, in Mexico and the majority of the time I've been in, in the U.S. now but I speak two languages, you know, I'm married to someone who's black. There's all these bifurcations of like my identity that often left me feeling that I didn't have one because mm. it was just so all over the place. And recently what I've started to do to realize is that it's actually all of that. That is all my identity. Mm. And so having a, a more unified identity, how mm. does that impact your experience of this of this moment and mm -hmm. how you how you operate in the world. Well, I think that because my identity, because I understood my identity in that way before, I was operating from a very like oppressed place, like an, a traumatized place where I just thought I was like this victim of circumstances and mm. there was no uh, reconciliation in my own story. And so how can I seek reconciliation with others? Because like F them, like it's about me, right? You know, mm -hmm. like it was just very like me centered because it was just, it was chaotic and it was just, I couldn't make sense of it. And I think recently in my reclaiming of it and saying like, no, 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 it's all of it. Instead of coming from a place of oppression and feeling oppressed, I feel that I'm coming from a place of healing and wanting to see healing. Hmm. If you've been listening to this podcast up to this point, hearing Alma talk about how her identity as a self has helped her may seem a little off-brand. After all, the last couple episodes, we really spent a lot of time looking at how the self is an illusion how assuming that we are the subject of experience rather than the all in which experience arises shrinks ourselves down and ends up in suffering. But I wanted to call attention to 
Alma's story here a little bit because sometimes non-dual thoughts like the ones expressed in this podcast can be read as though that is the way that one should experience reality. A lot of times someone that comes from a Judeo-Christian lens might hear the teaching of Buddha talking about how desire causes suffering and then make the leap to think that therefore desire is bad because surely we must be talking about how somebody else is supposed to live. In the West, so many of us see through the lens of Christendom, of divinely appointed right and wrong in the universe, black and white. We often view the world as though there was a single way of being, sort of a blanket of morality that we are tasked to throw over every single person. And there are no moral imperatives in non-duality. Moral imperatives are inherently dualistic. Alma found an identity that was more unified, that was deeper, and it brought her less suffering, not more suffering, and it helped her to focus on the healing of others. That's beautiful. The stories we tell are not bad. Identity is not bad. Attachment is not bad. Suffering is not bad. So even though where we are heading in this podcast is to see how our clinging to group identities can create suffering for us and to see through how all that is just made up, I wanted to take a moment to recognize that these made-up identity stories can be incredibly useful tools when they aren't acting as prison cells. Stories that form identity, those build worlds. This is Jason Petty, Alma's husband, also known under his hip-hop artist name, Propaganda. The worlds we exist in, you can draw a direct line to the creation narratives that we've told ourselves. And those creation narratives in the sense of like who we are, how we find personhood, and how we treat each other. I think that the reality is, you know, most of us think we uh, believe what we see, but I, 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 I'm pretty sure we we really just see what we believe you know you're, you're looking out into a thing yeah. you're really just seeing what what you believe you know very much uh, agree with that yeah i think that for myself i didn't as a child as if y'all know my past like i was my father was a black panther heavily involved civil rights movement you know vietnam war vet uh went to ucla for afro studies so my home was not uh fables and fairy tales from europe you know my home was the ten buck two road and tutin common masks and you know the five kingdoms of ghana and mali and songhai so like i had this like understanding that i was a part of this like long line of kings and empires and such and, and somehow or another that dna despite you know the horrible atrocities to america despite slavery despite jim crow despite redlining despite prison you know school to prison pipeline despite all that that stuff is still sitting in your bones mm-hmm. you know knowing that that stuff sits in my dna and that fortitude to be able to continue to be the person that i am is always like colored um one, the frustration about injustices, but also the confidence of knowing that my world will always be better 
stronger and more powerful than the narrative I'm being sold because I know I live in a greater universe, right? I know I live in a higher, I know my story doesn't start at the first slave ship. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's so it just shapes the way how I look at my own sufferings and justice, sufferings of others. Lastly, I'd say that first tour I've done was 27 Native American reservations uh, with my homeboy Red Cloud. Shout out Red Cloud. So anyway, on one of the reservations, one of the one of the things that one of our guides was telling us, you know, was he would say things like, I think it was the Crow Crow Land. He was like, "Yo, human in our culture, we don't believe that humans can own soil. Like you can't own land because you didn't make land. Mm-hmm. Like do the fish own the ocean? Mm-hmm. So what makes you think you own the land, right? So you can't own it. So if you can't own it, but you have it, that means it's a gift, right? So it's a gift from creator. They use creator as like a proper noun. It's a gift from creator. Mm-hmm. And if it's a gift from creator, that means it's sacred. People talk about sacred ground, but like all of it's sacred because we didn't make any of it. It's all a gift, right? And then he said, but you're also made of the soil. We call, we call yeah. humans the earth man, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're made of the soil and the soil's in gift and sacred, then that would mean that you're sacred and you're a gift, you know? When I think about like treating people with dignity and honor, it's because the soil is sacred, right? So I think that when you have that sort of identity of saying, my being sprouted from sacred land, then I'm going to think about the land and the persons around me very differently. So I think that what is being reflected back to me as who I'm supposed to be is so beneath the universe that I actually know that I come from. Did you hear that? What is being reflected back to me as who I am supposed to be? That's always short of the truth. Who you think you are, who you think you're supposed to be, that's all a reflection of the we stories that you've been formed by. And again, those stories can be useful and beautiful until they're not. Because these stories that we use to help navigate and cooperate in the world can devolve into labels and categories that box people in like a prison or a golden calf. The labels should serve as an aid to me, not me serving as an aid to the label. So Mm. when the label gets to make the rules that's when I think there becomes a problem because mm-hmm. now I'm ob- obeying these boxes, but I made up the boxes. Mm-hmm. The boxes are meant to serve me. You know what I'm saying? In a sense that a label can make sense out of chaos, right? And help you color the world that you see in a way that, I, in my mind, sparks beauty and compassion and grace and empathy and understanding, then I think it's great, you know what I'm saying? And wonder if it can spark all those things. But to the extent that those things become not that, and now they're like, it's a matter of falling in line, then I think like, I think you're in, you're in troubled waters. I guess the only thing that I would add to is just the purpose of even having boxes to check, it's all because of census and government, right? Like a lot of it has to do with just making it easier to categorize ourselves and to understand who each other are. So in essence, they, they already are dehumanizing to mm-hmm. us and mm. just in, in the way that they're thought of because that's what they were for, you know? And so the purpose of has always been to, in some senses, dehumanize ourselves and so how do you and why do you keep labeling like what is the purpose and the politics behind that it's identity politics it's about 
knowing how to now as a politician or as a whatever sort of role you're in, knowing how to, in a sense, trick people. I mean, it's, you know, you can call it marketing or whatever other name, but really, in a sense, is to like trick them into voting for you and mm. for them to like, you're to to help them see how you're that person too you're that person that checked off those same boxes yeah you know and so to me i've always had a had a really hard time with labels and i mean like always i remember when i was like in junior high and in high school and i was like i'm not just mexican though i'm not just latina though like yeah. i feel like i am of uh, like my my ancestors were like natives of this land like how do yeah. i tell you census <laughs> like, checklist mm. that it, this is inconsequential to whatever you're trying to do with this this data mm. <laughs> you yeah know? like for me it was always i've always struggled with that and for a long time That's i good. was also like labels are used in such a way especially for my like i feel like i've been a recipient of being labeled in a way that was very dehumanizing um and and i feel like this has done a lot in education with labels such as at risk Mm-hmm. And like, what does that mean? A risk for what? Like, what are we a mm. risk for? And like, and, I, and I've carried that label for so long that, you know, that's why for me, I think I, now in the ways that I see identity and, and identity checking is like, I'm, it's so dehumanizing to do that to mm. me anymore. And I don't want it to be an oppressive thing for me anymore. So I'm, I usually just kind of decline to state. Mm. <laughs> you know? yeah. I'm just like. I'm not. I'm not gonna put myself in in a hole. Even though I mean, I, I am part of my Latinoness, and like I'm, I you know, I do consider myself Latina. But I feel like it's much more complicated than that. And and I don't feel made whole when I'm checking off a box that says just one thing. So what's the difference between that and colorblindness? Like just ignoring intersections of identity or, mm-hmm. right, right, right. or whatever. Well, I think that colorblindness is about like trying to erase any differences so that we can just all have this one thing that we can mm. all relate to so it could be easier for the majority mm. yeah it serves the it norm it serves the majority and the norm yeah. and so that's what colorblindness is versus acknowledging that that we're different and complicated um, but also that you sh- we should respect each other's differences yeah. and complications like we shouldn't just aim to become one yeah, because it's not colorblind. It's just one color. There's a difference. Mm. You know what I'm saying? So you're not erasing color. You're just picking one and saying that this yeah, is what it yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? To come to and this. we all need to come to this. Yeah. You know. Mm. Um, so that's that's that would be the difference. Is like the, the who it who it serves. Mm-hmm. I think uh, going back to something you said too, which was like I, it stuck with me when you were talking about being at risk. You know, because of your your. Uh, you know, your origin stories, like your childhood, where you raised, where you came from, even sitting in a PhD program, like she's getting her doctorate, she's at risk youth. Wow. It's like, wait, because that's how the boxes work. Wow. You know what I'm saying? Like, wait, yeah. when, can she, when is she going to not be at risk? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> when are you not at risk? You know, yeah. be like, I, I, I think she made it. You know? <laughs> I think when you're at PhD level, we can stop oh. calling brown people. You can at stop risk. calling her at risk. Wow. You think so? What do you think? I don't know. I think so. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I think she's fine. You know what I mean? yeah. Lower than average risk. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Thank you guys so much. Yeah, really helpful. Yeah, man. All right, so let's take one more moment of recognizing the usefulness of group identities before 
we burn all of the concepts to the ground. Without group identities, we humans could not survive on a planet with so many things that would love to eat us. Group identities help us think, speak, dream, imagine, create, cooperate, and connect. Without these stories of who we are, there wouldn't be a sense of I, there wouldn't be a way for oneness to experience distinction. And that's an important thing to recognize, that oneness is not sameness. Unity is not uniformity. Oneness includes distinction and differences, just like a body includes different aspects of a body, but that doesn't mean it's a divided body. Group identities are extremely important and beautiful inventions, but they are by nature reductionistic. By design, they cut off the edges of a person that don't fit the concept. Nobody can ever live up to the exact measurement of who they think they're supposed to be based on all of the we stories that culture has handed them. The biblical apologist has her secret moments of doubt. That gorgeous photoshopped model on Instagram picks her nose in the car sometimes. None of us fit the boxes that people try to put us in. A lot of us pretend like we do and just compensate for that lie with inner shame and repression. But the truth is that you don't have to believe the stories that you have been handed about who you're supposed to be. You don't have to believe those scripts in order to belong. All of the stories that form your view of self, of morality, of truth and beauty and justice and all the rest of it, They're all just stories that we made up in order to craft the world more effectively to our desires, to try to turn this into that. And when we cling to that desire, when we cling to those stories and group identities as being something more than a useful and practical tool, Those helpful stories and identities instead become our prisons, our source of suffering. So let me ask you, who is it that you think you are, beloved? You think of yourself as a man, a woman, a lawyer, computer programmer, a musician, a mom, a Scorpio, maybe an Enneagram 4. Those are all just stories constructs that you've been handed by the people around you in order to tell you who you're supposed to be. But you aren't supposed to be anything. You, the real you, are not just the foreground, but you're also the background. You're not just the distinction, you're also the unity. You're the yin and the yang, the all, perfect and complete. And that even includes all of your thoughts and desires to be something other than what you are. It all goes together as this moment, this breath, this heartbeat. What else could you be, beloved? 
you, the true you, awareness itself, is not a story. You are this, this seamless, unbroken reality that gives rise as here and now, limitless, infinite, without beginning or end. And the rest of it's just stories. So, breathe free, beloved. This is all there is.